from 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News, coming to you from a ping pong table instead of a pub this week. Coming up, we discuss the hiring talent war between banks and fintechs, Google and Tencent team up, is that amazing or terrifying, and Jason starts his very own kitten talent agency. All this on more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We're here at the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. Not in the pub this week, although there are still some beverages available. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues and co-hosts, Jason Bates and David Breer. How are you doing, guys? Super good. Like, this week has just gone by in a flash. I, I, I have no idea where it went. I think I, I'd actually have to look back through my diary to know what happened every day because oh, it's just been day, a blur. Yeah. <laughs> Quite amazing. But um, yeah, looking forward to the weekend right now, I think. Some sleep would be good. How about you, Jay? I'm good. I'm feeling good today. I think it's taken about a week and a half or two weeks from Christmas to actually get back into some kind of rhythm. Um, but I'm there. I'm in the zone. You got that no, zone. No hangry Jason from last week. <laughs> it's it's mellow Jason this week. Mellow Jason. Well, I'm liking mellow Jason. I can get with this. Hangry Jason. We don't like that guy. It's, it's what half a lager does to him. <laughs> <laughs> Half a log, it makes Jason mellow. Uh, enough about us, let's introduce our guests. Um, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Mr. Patrick Lane, banking editor at The Economist. Say hi, Patrick, how are you doing? Uh, hi, Simon, thanks very much. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, and I'm doing fine. Good, well, we're excited to have you as well. And making a return, we have uh, Sophie Winwood, who is the head of partnerships at Innovate Finance. Nice to have you back, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, glad to be back too. You've got your global conference coming up, is that coming together nicely? Yes, IFGS, 19th and 20th of March, little plug there. Um, it's uh, it's crazy, but it's it's really good. We've got a great lineup of speakers, and um, it's going to be a sort of fintech festival this year. So, Ooh, very rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, whilst we're on the subject of um, fintech festivals, let's um, move into some news. All right, first story in the news this week, submitted to our website, fintechinsidernews.com, by a friend of the show, Val Christensen. Uh, banks and fintechs are apparently dueling in a war for talent. So uh, anybody want to take a start on this one for me? David, maybe? Yeah, it's a, an interesting one. We're, we're seeing, I guess, uh, this uh, trend being reversed a little bit. We were, we were sort of seeing everybody disappearing from big banks to go to small players doing it. Does that story sound familiar to you, Simon? Leaving a big bank, going to do a smaller thing? No, maybe? I don't know where you got no. that from. No, okay, no, 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 so. I didn't. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah me too. But um, but I, I think the what we're sort of seeing really is a bit of a reverse on some of those things. So like banks are putting up a bit of a fight, aren't they? And I don't mean that sort of stereotypical, you know, high one dude from Google and hope it hope changes the whole company thing. Um, but this is actually really going into the engineering side of things and, and pulling people back a little bit. So I, I think it's interesting because it feels like the, I don't want to say the empire strikes back on this one really, but um, it does feel like the banks are maybe standing up for themselves a little bit more. Can they really do it though, given you know, cash flow restrictions around, you know, salary caps on what they're doing and the just fundamentally the ways in which they go about producing things. Do we think they can really vie for the best talent? Yeah, I, th- I think it's an interesting question because banks do have that brand. You know, people, when they're even kind of coming out of university, I, I don't know if it's still the case, but, you know, the milk rounds, the banks, the consultancies, those are the guys that you're hearing about. But as fintech kind of is a lot more mature now, you've got bigger companies, you know, like GoCardless is hiring quite a lot of people, Lend Invest. So there are these jobs. And I think with, with us, with us, I hate to that, with us millennials, it's, it's the, you know, brand 
and security versus that flexibility and being able to feel like you can kind of create your own career. And it's an interesting kind of battle. I think increasingly, though, is, is not just as uh, consumer goods, but actually the, 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 the company that you work for. I think people want it to embody actually what they stand for, don't they? Which is it's hard with sort of big lumbering traditional companies, isn't it? So, and that's not just banks; it's you know even into big consultancy firms and big technology firms. The what you want your brand to represent is what you are as an individual. So it's like it's the reason why I like Apple stuff is because I'm aluminium or something. I don't know, but um, <laughs> um, but it's a. Do you know what I mean? I think it's a it's a hard one, isn't it? Because it's a what's the circle here do you have to change the culture of the company completely to then acquire the people you want or can you buy the ones that you need i'm thinking of like man city metaphors back in like when they were buying random brazilians but it started the process do you know what i mean it wasn't it wasn't the fact that buy it was the nt brazilian football players and you can make any team good and i think if you learn nothing from this podcast it's that so. <laughs> also i I, th- I think from the from a conventional career point of view, there's probably not much downside, right? You can if if you go out and work in a startup that's that's growing, that's doing well for for a couple of years, the bank will still want you afterwards. It's not gonna it's not gonna harm your career in conventional financial services afterwards. So um, why not? I wonder about the other way though. What about the other way? If you went from a uh, so if uh, somebody from Monzo decided to go work for Barclays for, for, for four years, would it damage their cred? Because actually, I think it's not about, um, it's not just about your, like, how, um, like, hipster your beard is. It's it's like, have you fundamentally delivered something? And almost like the damage that I see sometimes when people go into big organizations is the inability to put something on their CVs that they've made happen. I think it depends at what level. You know, if you go into, if you go into Barclays quite high up, that's not going to do you any harm. But if you've only just started you in middle ranks or lower ranks that could do a bit of damage i think it's also a bit narrow to say banks are battling fintechs because in the end we're talking about digital talent so if it's about product technology design those things are transferable across industries so the number of people who are banking specialists even in a big fintech is actually a lot smaller than i think most people would expect so it's much more likely that actually a you know someone from monzo or starling or uh, go cardless would go and join another successful startup in an, in a tangential or adjacent industry than it is that they would feel that they're stuck in banking because ultimately the entire world's going through a digital transformation and every company is looking at how to get from that digitized analog product into that truly digital service and i don't want to mention the elephant in the room but post brexit there's the risk of losing staff to europe from um, both a fintech and a banking perspective so they've both got that to to kind of worry about i I think there is something to you know tech talent is something that has flooded into quote-unquote fintech more and more and the blood edge is probably more on that side and the walls more on that side than it is between the banks and uh and the fintechs themselves and also looking at the examples in the piece we were talking about they were doing fairly specific products right but uh, another company where you see a lot of uh, ex-bank ex-accountants uh, ex-financial services people come in is has been consensus for example and they of course because they're trying to build a platform they in particular would be selling to banks you know so the, the value of, of their new staff to them is partly the contact with the people they used to work for yeah. and so it's almost if you leave banking altogether you're actually selling stuff but making stuff for banks and selling it back to them and i can see the attraction of that there's also something i think around the the frozen middle you know how many people in that sort of mid to senior level management within a bank says great i want to go and join a fintech 
but ultimately have the skills on managing large traditional organizations. So it comes to an interview and, and you say, well, what can you do? And it's like, well, I can manage 10,000 people. It's like, well, that's great, but not a problem we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's also something about seniority in banks. And actually, one of the skills you learn is how to run banks, how to run big banks. Therefore, does that translate across? Is that a transferable skill set into anything apart from big industry? Yeah, and I, I, I do think, though, that as fintech is maturing and you're seeing more B2B companies come to light, that even if you are managing a large bank, generally you're doing it in a specific um, department and there will be a problem to be solved that you will need that domain expertise to then go out and start it. So I, I get that point that it, it is sort of, you know, you're on a larger scale, but we do actually need these guys to jump out and start fintech companies. Otherwise, we're not going to get that. Well, and on that basis, um, on ft.com, a uh, story submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Alex S says that business schools have a problem with fintech. So uh, the FT Global Alumni Survey uh, looked into subjects taught according to the best and worst. Of course, finance shows up as top as the best taught subject with fintech um 16 out of the 18 they surveyed so actually um kind of the the pipeline of of younger talent seems to have a real issue there's no way uh, you can go and get the education other than you kind of being an already being a practitioner in some way and maybe coming from tech maybe coming from banking and there's a quote in here where as uh, as one dean put it to the reporter fintech is quote unquote just really about writing apps uh, and I, I wonder if that's a misconception and there's a story on CFTE that's linked to this which is what is fintech and how do you build a career in it and I think is there a misconception set there that we need to play with so I, I kind of bizarrely and accidentally got into this with the lady who was writing this report on the FT, so Helen Barrett, who was really, really nice and really, really friendly. But I kind of think academic studies of something that's changing so dramatically day in, day out becomes a bit of a misnomer, if I'm honest with you. My my kind of point is I learned more about banking through looking at traditional banking to know where the problems were, to be able to then go and fix them. And that's actually what fintech's doing. It's not, um, to your point, the people who are leaving banks are actually going, I can't fix this here. I can probably do a better job at this if I've got the freedom and the autonomy to go and make it happen. But the problem that they're they're fixing is generally a bank's problem. There's very little complete revolutionary uh, thought happening. Not, not that's not a diss in any way, shape, or form. But people are going, going and fixing known problems. You know, um, and I personally, I, I don't think, um, I don't think academic study of fintech is fintech isn't old enough to do that yet. You know, an academic study of an accounting practices or something along those lines makes total sense. But I think you'd, you'd be much better getting practitioners into, um, you know, these schools to go. This is what we did, and this is how we did it. Because if not, you just, you know, people. But you've got academics making up stuff about it or just being an app, you know? Well, and I think without veering into an education conversation, broadly, education is geared towards academia rather than practical experience. And this is uh, one area in which you build a skill shortage as an economy. You find yourself consistently training people who are good academics and not training people with the set of skills they need to be practitioners. Uh, So this course from CFTE, um, there was a lecture given at the Oxford FinTech and Smart Law Society, um, says the skills you need for a career in FinTech are loosely defined as data. I, I don't know what that means. API, 
that's a, apparently a skill. I want me some API. <laughs> Putting that on my CV now. I, I'd be very happy with that. Risk management is, is a skill, apparently, and coding, whatever that stuff is. Um, and then you need an agile mindset, leadership, and adaptability. Well, I don't know that there's an industry where any of those are not true. But that just sounds like my mum trying to describe what I do. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it's so generic and broad that it's hard to... You knew my mum would get a mention at some point, right? <laughs> Shout out to David's mum. I mean, there's possibly a more general problem in business schools, right? In, a, in most conventional academic disciplines that are taught in universities, the teacher and the doer are the same thing. So if you're you know, most well-known economists, for example, are academic economists, they're university professors. Same with natural scientists, it's what they, it's what they do. In business schools, that problem changes slightly. Okay, there are a lot of good economists who, te- who teach in business schools. Um, but when you get to doing something that really is practical to do with the nature of work, it must be very, very hard. I mean, all, all the people who are, I, mean, I don't want to say those who can do, those who can't teach, but that's, you, you're straying into that sort of territory, right? And ultimately, if, if you're looking at it at university or college, not as, a, um, as an education in terms of broadening my mindset, but looking at it more as a vocation, then you, what you hope is that those three years jump you 10 years of experience, that ultimately you learn everything about what was going on in that career, in that world, so that you can take all of that experience and put it to, to work. But we are in a very young very vibrant, evolving world. And I think that lends itself more to the apprenticeship model. Actually, you go in as a junior employee, you have functional skills, you're a coder, designer, a product person, a something. You know, I joined a, one of the, uh, the big consulting firms straight out of university, and that was an amazing apprenticeship on the world of business. You know, you had meetings, you did reports, you were given things to do that were junior, but you, through osmosis, you grew the skills you needed to do in order to do it and actually I ran the um, uh, for a a couple of courses the junior uh, consulting school the analyst school at Chicago for Anderson Consulting at Accenture back in the day just a couple of courses for for those um, those new people and the the big thing was actually deprogramming people from what they were used to at university so in university you never copy at work if someone knows how it works you go and say hey how did you do that because I need to do it again you know at university it's about what you can do in the real world it's about getting to that end result getting it done and if you can get a team of people to help you and convince someone in accounting to give you an easy way through in academia that would be cheating in the work world like that's just obvious so there's almost like a deprogramming of what actually academia gave you in order to to succeed and you've got to wonder that people who join who are just ridiculously engaged and very into their subjects and are people who are actually practitioners of of some kind of of startup skill uh, actually working in startups is is arguably the the best education yeah i think that's the you know mbas are crazy expensive right so what if you just put your mba fund aside and then started your own company or at least kind of went and worked in a company. The other thing which I think is quite interesting and um, I just um, got accepted onto the Smartly program which is an um, online MBA which you do on your in your own time. It's free um, but it's all the same sort of principles you come out at the end with an MBA. So it's like how do you evolve 
this education along with the careers that you're hopefully going to go into i think that's it's quite an interesting space that's going to play out that's really interesting i'll go and have a look at that it sounds sounds fascinating as a what the curriculum and everything behind it is i don't know where you're going to fit it in with everything you've got to do but <laughs> sophie's busy it, it's a an, an interesting one to almost go um like I, I think it's it's hard because fintech's so sexy right now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like the cool thing everybody wants to leave a bank to go and do. So uh, there's the risk that people just going and starting companies is just going to be like the long road to ruin. I think there's the realization that actually most SMEs fail. Uh, mo- and it doesn't matter if they're a fintech one or a making cakes type thing, that most businesses actually do fail. So I think this sort of facade of this, um, you know, entrepreneurial sort of standing on the front of the ship and everything's going to be wonderful because I'm a- an amazing human being and fintech, yeah, like it's really hard, right? You know, so. It's also that horrible, those horrible conversations you have where someone who's fresh out of their Ivy League MBA or super high university comes and says, hey, Jason, uh, so I, I want advice on how to become like a product manager. And you're like, right, you know that there's that takes a lot of it's like saying, how do you become a CEO? It's like, well, you work at it for quite a long time. But there's not that patience of I'm going to join and do junior jobs and junior jobs and, and ascend the ladder. That where it actually that's how it works I mean you want people who have been doing things rather than oh yeah I've got tons of qualifications I've been to university I think I'd be a great product manager there is an interesting cultural thing as well that you see a lot more in the US where um, the the uni you went to the school you went to opens doors for you it's a bit less in Europe um, I have to say but it's still it's still taken very very seriously you know Oxbridge is, is still seen it oh, oh yeah but actually there's there's still those intangibles that people hire for which um, are the the really important things, which is actually if I drop this person into something, will they get it done and come back to it? Will they figure it out? Like that's ultimately what you're looking for. And I know that sounds very nebulous, um, but I, I got to move to the next story. Which speaking of the US, we have a batch of stories. Um, if uh, if you're a fan of UK hip hop, it seems that um, they've been listening to Skeptic because the US is shut down. Um, uh, yeah, I went there. Sorry, that was the whitest joke in the room ever, wasn't it? I am so pale and white right now. Eighty percent of the audience is, is like shrugging at this point. They're like, they have no idea. Hippity hop. <laughs> when you you're in for a luck now. You're in for a luck indeed. Can I just say it was completely lost on me? <laughs> so the US government was officially shut down uh, in a failure to meet official budget and approval dates and they've had a whole bunch of departments close but along with that political drama uh, there's also been a story from payments.com where US big banks have had some credit losses so the big four US retail banks dealt with an almost 20% increase in credit card losses last year can you say financial crisis number two anyone Um, so Citigroup JP Morgan Chase Bank of America Wells Fargo suffered a combined 12.5 billion or 2 billion more than the year before, uh, and JP Morgan added $200 million to its reserve for future card losses for the fourth quarter. This, Are we heading this, into another credit bubble? This sounds like a question for The Economist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I saw this, I didn't think uh, crisis number two at all uh, for a couple of reasons. One is they aren't actual losses yet. These are provisions against future losses. This is this is taking a precaution, which is you know they may materialise and 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 they obviously think that they think that that's pretty likely. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the provision. The other thing is that they started from pretty low base, so 
when you consider how low credit card losses have been over the past uh, few years, you know, since the crisis they dipped, I think the, the I, I can't remember exactly when 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 the low is. And also, you know, the head of J.P. Morgan's consumer business was saying last year, you know, I've said that this has been coming for two years. Um, and in the broader context, actually, U.S. banks aren't having too bad a time at all at the moment. I mean, nowhere near where they were during the go-go years, but returns on equity are up to about 10%, which is, I think, for the first time since the crisis. Interest rates are rising. Interest rates are rising. So you see the net interest revenue from uh, net interest is is beginning to go up. Okay, they've got absolutely slammed in fixed income trading. Everyone everyone knows that. If you're Goldman Sachs in particular, well, everybody is obviously weeping for them. But, But you look at the way other people have come through this you know morgan morgan stanley for example by diversifying into wealth management has done has, has done better it's market capitalization has just overtaken goldman sachs for the first time in 10 years um you look at the tax reform that's just happened okay though a lot of them are taking big hits but those are just really adjustments to things called deferred tax assets which are the result of past losses which are now sort of worth less and everybody knows you know they reckon that their tax rate which was 30 percent plus is now going to be 20 percent minus but do, do you think the the lower for longer interest rate environment is leading to consumer credit problems just because actually there's just so many offers at the moment even in the uk about transfer your thing over here don't pay for it forever yeah, oh, I, th- I think it has to. I think there are two reasons for that. One is just it, it, it obviously encourages people to to load up on debt, which to some extent we've seen in the, we've seen in the UK certainly, uh, also seeing in the US. The other is a sort of uh, I don't know what you call it exactly, sort of multiplier effect. So if you get a if you get a one percent one percentage point rise in interest rates when interest rates are one percent, and okay, actually people pay a lot more than that on on credit cards, but let's start there. Then that's a doubling. If it's one percent. Uh, an extra percentage point when they're 10%, that's only 10%. So there's a, there's bound to be a, a sort of proportionate effect when interest rates do eventually rise. But that said, they're very, very low. And although they're rising in the US, they're going to remain very, very low for a long time, as far as anybody can tell. So I think to Jason's point, is there more of a, um, a social responsibility and, and societal problem building? Because even though in the US and, and in the UK, we just saw uh, figures where unemployment's reaching um, historic lows, uh, that seems to happen right before a crash. I mean, we talk about all-time highs in the market. We talk about um, unemployment at all-time lows. Uh, maybe it's not the same type of credit crunch with um, ca- banks that are better capitalized, but you do still have a, a customer base that might not be able to carry that debt. Simon's got his, like, bare head on today. Simon's like, crash! Like, are you sure it's going to be a crash? Let's crash, everyone! No, I, I'm playing host. Like, I've got, I've got to challenge some peeps. Like, maybe I'm halfway into a beer. I don't know. Could be all sorts. But... Uh, aren't we damned if we do and damned if we don't though like if if we stop issuing credit and people stop spending and stop buying things and the money stops stops going around the system again then actually aren't we completely screwed anyway so what's the what's we're just screwed david <laughs> it's all what, you too you too you're and, uh, in that mood as well it, it's infectious i know so can i can i add to that mood because oh. i <laughs> i did a bit of um kind of digging around the the actual stats about um the u.s kind of um debt and uh, there's an article on CNBC that says that um, the average American has a credit card balance of 6,375, up 3% from last year. And total credit card debt has reached $1 trillion in 2017. So it's obviously a massive build-up. But then they do go on to say, is that because consumers are actually more comfortable with debt um, and they understand how to use it? So that's just 
the amount of debt. That's not saying that people are getting killed with interest rates and stuff. So I think it is it is a consumer shift, but those are some really big numbers. They are, and, and for a lot of banks, uh, credit card divisions still remain remarkably profitable. Uh, i got to move us to the next story, one from ampproject.org. Uh, it says, Wells Fargo apologizes for a glitch that emptied out some bank accounts. So some Wells Fargo customers had their bank accounts completely cleared out on Wednesday of last week. So if you're listening to this, it would be Wednesday the week before. Um, a glitch saw caused some online bill payments to be processed twice. Um, and it, that double payments triggered overda- overdraft protection fees, taking more money out of accounts. Um, and apparently Wells Fargo went as far as putting a message out on Twitter, but they didn't actually contact customers directly and customers had to work out for themselves that their accounts had been drained. So, um, you know, the, nice nice job, guys. Well, yeah, but actually when you think about that, it almost, it seems that there's some batch job that ran twice or something that happened, you know, and and they will be able to tell what happened, what money moved where, they'll be able to address all of that. So part of this seems a little bit sensationalistic. Everybody will be made It cleared off. out bank accounts. Well, actually, it just seemed that there were bills that were paid twice. And then for people who only had enough to pay that one bill, then yes, it would well, have don't a, an sense, Jason. And it's Wells Fargo, right? So, so Wells, it never rains, but it pours. And so when you, but when you compare it to the ghost accounts thing and the, and, and the, and the mortgages thing, this is, this is to, to, to mix uh, watermelon, metaphors it's a drop in a bucket well, th- well this one sounds like an accident rather than on purpose doesn't it so it's uh, there's a major difference this was it? not a strategy Indeed. I think yeah. I, I think there's something about yeah they can make people whole they can roll this one back that's quite nice um, and it's the kind of thing that has been happening but I, I think you're right if it wasn't Wells Fargo maybe this isn't such such a big story I, th- I think the you know evidence to what is clearly an overnight batch process for for payments like that's not a good thing you know i think the the realities of today's needing for you know real-time call banking engines it's clear that there isn't one in effect here in terms of what's happening so you know in terms of setting themselves up for all of the things that they actually need to do next which is all of the stuff that's a lot more complicated than what they're doing now overnight batch processes is not not the way forward life's a batch if you're wells fargo yeah and go talk to rbs like they've had that problem for a while all right uh, moving away from bad news in the u.s and heading down under uh there's some Sort of good news. Uh, so opengovasia.com, story submitted to fintingasidernews.com by uh, Bob McLean. Shout out to Bob McLean if you're listening. Australia to introduce a new industry-wide payments platform for real-time payments. So they're going to launch their new payments platform, NPP, um, in, you down with NPP? You know me. Uh, <laughs> in 2018, to support the need for real-time payments of its digital economy, uh, the NPP is a new national infrastructure project to support payments between business accounts and customers at different financial institutions. Uh, fast, versatile, rich payments any time of day. Um, and I guess it's kind of um, seen as being quite uh, innovative. It's expected that over 50 banks and credit unions and building societies will be connected to the platform when it launches uh, in, in a few months' time. Uh, Sometime coming, uh, this real-time payment system in Australia. But Australia, we've talked about Zinja last week. We've talked about a few things where it was a very concentrated banking market. Now it seems to be there's a there's a challenger bank there. May, there may be a few more coming. It, it was sort of more US-like in that its local clearing was slower. That's now turning around. Is this is it is it sort of taking a lead from the UK from Singapore perhaps? Where where's 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 all this heading? I just sort of feel like this is my friend telling me he's buying an iPhone. I'm like yeah you buy an iphone like this is just an expected (laughs) thing like this is great it's great that they're catching up 
but it just sort of feels like the type of thing that they have to have in place now to be competing globally as a uh, you know a player from a financial services perspective really well I mean I was looking at the press release or one of the press releases about them essentially using industry collaboration to enable households businesses and government agencies to make simply addressed payments with near real-time funds uh, but there was some interesting stuff around uh, for instance the 18 characters currently available in direct entry payments you know this thing is going to support multiple overlay services uh, that means that they can add a, a variety of data now we don't have that I mean faster payments doesn't have that kind of infrastructure so I, I mean it's not a inconsequential thing to get a whole army of banks onto a new payment rails uh, and equally if they built it in a way that means that they can do all kinds of push pull uh, you know modern payments then that's got to be a good thing it is but i'll point out the words aims expected <laughs> i think probably is somewhere in here as well you know what i mean like I, I i love the ambition but we'll sort of see what's actually delivered right and, and it's five servant swift behind the scenes um at, at in terms of uh, fast land animals, um, you can guarantee that they'll get you there. Um, will they get you there first? That's, that's a good question. Um, but uh, I think there's there's a couple of other things around. They're, they're baking in the ability to make uh, faster payments from bank accounts, but also connect mobile phones to that as well. So we've seen a lot of jurisdictions like uh, in the UK or uh, Zelle in the US where they, they try and retrofit uh, mobile numbers and mobile payments over the top of local clearing, whereas this is baked in from the beginning. So there's a nice idea there. And I remember me and you did talk about this actually earlier on the week in the, in the office like that as a default is is actually an amazing thing you know yeah. retrospectively fitting that on is is hard but if they're doing that by default that's that's pretty smart yeah so um also from cmo.au uh, westpac are bringing back transacting to text messaging so uh, what it's claiming is is banking first for australia westpac's new iMessage shortcut will allow customers to make payments generate a cashless card code and share their bank details digitally within a text message um just a day after the bank also announced its first skill for amazon so westpac wants to be seen as uh, as as cool i guess i don't know anybody thoughts on like how much need there is for this like peer-to-peer payments are they a thing i well i, I think the cashless card stuff it, like again you know we talk about still with pride a lot but rbs did do that quite a long time ago here and i don't like i don't want that to sound like some sort of hipster if well it's been done type thing it's it's um it's an amazing thing that they're putting in place and i, I actually really see the use case for that very frequently if i'm honest with you but um the other things in this like there's some security things I'd love to understand about how they're doing a, you know, a short code text message link to basically get all of your banking details. Like that feels a bit odd to me across across SMS. That doesn't feel secure to me. But I guess we'll have to go and dig and figure out what it, what it is that they're actually doing. Low on details. What do you think about the Australian market, uh, Patrick? I have to confess, I had no idea what to make of it because I I don't know how much. I mean, there are so many different ways you can make payments. I just wonder what does it, what does what what does being able to do it over SMS add? Is it is it, is it aimed at a you know, particular particular group? You know, is it might older people use it more than uh, hipsters or people considerably younger than me? So quite hard to know what to make of that. Going back to what you were saying earlier, Australian market, which is has been very concentrated, might now be getting more open to challenger banks and see more competition. That's pretty interesting, largely because that concentration has been seen as a, at the time of the financial crisis was seen as a great strength. There as in Canada. So although you think competition is great, at the same time you think, well, actually in this case, could more competition make things make things slightly worse in Australia? I do think as well, do people use iMessages? Like is that, or does everyone just use WhatsApp? Because surely as soon as we get payments through WhatsApp or, you know, WeChat and, and all that sort of stuff, 
it, this becomes irrelevant. It, it sort of feels like banks using the a little bit older technology and being like, oh, we can get in here with iMessages. It's like, well, I don't know. Well, because Apple launched their prepaid card some time ago in which they were going to allow you to do peer-to-peer payments. So this, we saw this with Apple Pay and Android Pay where the banks all try and launch their own version of it and try and get you using it. But then ultimately the tech giants kind of win out because they've got more better network effects. I mean, I don't know if this Did is... Did you say gonna... more better network effect there? That was both the smartest and the dumbest. And they're like, and that was amazing. So I'm a smart guy. <laughs> Come on, if we start picking up every grammar mistake on this podcast, yeah, this I mean, is going to be a really long one. Glass houses and stones <laughs> with your cashew nuts. <laughs> but I think that there's that constant refrain. Every story that we bring up like this is payments has gone from the banking app. Payments belong where customers are interacting with each other, whether that's in MeetSpace or on iMessage or on WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or wherever else. And ultimately, we're seeing people bring out new ways of sending those payments, those peer-to-peer payments, or you owe me this money, how, is, how do you get it to me, that make that easier? Because who wants to remember a account number, sort code, IBAN, routing number, and everything else? So, so that stuff's moving. But what the channel is... I guess, depends on all kinds of demographics and marketplaces and, uh, you know, the geographies that you're talking about. But I think that there's that general trend towards, you know, no one's sending money through their banking app anymore. You just need to make it easy for me to do it where I am. Completely. Uh, so, as as to where that where you are and, and uh, the sort of the hint towards tech giants, it seems like Google and Tencent have teamed up. They've agreed to share patents in a global tech alliance. Axis so this, of evil. That's I know. All I'm saying. You can't see this, listeners, but I just glared at Jason <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. Uh, so this comes from Bloomberg. Uh, Alphabet Inc. and Tencent Holdings Limited have agreed to share patents covering a range of products and technologies. Um, the second and fifth largest largest companies in the world should allow Google to rebuild its presence in China after it withdrew from its search engine in 2010 um, and sharing AI software tools and ramping up an investment. Um, And there's a quote from Mike Lee, who's Google's head of patents, which is, by working together on agreements such as this, tech companies can focus on building better products and services for their users. Holy ramifications for the tech industry and geopolitics. Like, wow, somebody's trying to, there's so much going on here. Any thoughts? I wonder what was in it for Tencent. Yeah, you totally get it for Google, but well, I think Tencent probably got caught. I don't know. Well, you, you might think, hey, you know, Google is is one of the is the world's leader in artificial intelligence. You know, everything from beating humans at Go to machine learning and the amount of data and everything that those guys have got. Even the businesses they buy, there's something about machine learning that's that's at the core of that. Organizing the world's information, making decisions and actions on the world's information. So if you're going to partner with someone to do AI, then you know Google's seen the obvious part. Oh, so it's sort of market access for for Google and AI for Tencent. I think there's a bit of that, but it's actually they're, they're describing it as a typical industry arrangement between corporations designed to minimise patent infringements. Um, so with the US company signing similar deals with Samsung and others, and of course they had to uh, was it did they buy um, Motorola in order to deal with a patent war? Like it, the, there's stuff like that that Google is doing, and I think um, there's probably somebody that was coming to and open a patent war on them. Tencent maybe had a bunch of patents or vice versa. Tencent were going to be in the midst of a patent war and this helps them out. And so there was like... uh 
patents and IP law are a really interesting strategic negotiating chip, and the alliances that form are sort of uh, the, my enemy's enemy is my friend's. But but does China worry so much about IP infringement and patent problems? I was going to say that's based on my experience, not the, not the, not the thing they worry about. You know? to, to Patrick's point, what's the quid pro quo? Yeah, but also you might be worried about you. You might be worried about being sued in the U.S. court. So so if if the rationale is is actually at bottom to save lawyers' fees, which could be very very high, then then then, then maybe that makes a lot of sense. And the small guy loses out. The startups have problems. I, I see this as you say. This is a an amazing opportunity for for Google to get a foothold back into a, a a whole region that has just huge amounts of potential. So you know, given that they've been pretty much booted out of everything in that region then this is a foothold back isn't it yeah it helps them back in does right. it i was just gonna say is it doesn't it feel terrifying though like you've got two of the biggest companies in the world how is anyone ever gonna nothing like, isn't can competition? possibly go wrong true, everything's that's very fine, true. Yeah, no, it's gonna be fine buy your products and shush <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't they say don't be evil or did they stop that are they allowed to be evil now yeah no is don't that- be evil that was one of their yeah, I think you've reached a certain age of company and you just become evil. It must be the case. Um, but I still love you, Google. Uh, all right, uh, let's take a quick break whilst we hear from our sponsor. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. This episode is sponsored by TopTal. And to find out more about them, we spoke to Jeffrey, a TopTal consultant. What TopTal is doing is it's going out and it's finding the absolute top talent in each industry, whether it's designing, whether it's engineering, UX, UI, or in my case, in finance. And then what it's doing is turning around and and offering our services, our collective knowledge to those entrepreneurs in need. Over the past 10, 12 years, I worked across five or six different industries, starting out in real estate, then in banking, moving into private equity and venture capital, I had worked for HSBC, for Morgan Stanley, and I can honestly say that interviews at both of those banks were far easier than than a top tell. And and I really say that, although laughing, in all seriousness. So how do top tell match clients and consultants? It turns out it isn't as simple as just matching them. The process is also rigorous. So I need to understand, you know, what is your company? What do you do? Who are you and how did you come to the idea of this company and really understand where this company is going? I'll then try to figure out what are your goals. But it's really an interview both ways. How are different points in my background applicable to this opportunity, to this job, to this engagement, and how am I going to help you solve for your goals? And again, from my perspective, if I feel that there's not much value I can add to you, the client, or to you, the potential client, uh, I'm always upfront and, and will say that right away. I love TopTel as a platform. It really allows me as an individual to apply the skills and apply the information that I've gathered over the past 
uh, over my career history and be able to help entrepreneurs. I think that that's something so visceral and so intimate because you are working with an entrepreneur who is building their company, right? For exclusive access to the top talent in designers, developers, and finance experts, visit toptal.com. This episode of Fintech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powder food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel. Often when we're super busy or literally have no time to eat, we still want to be healthy though. And Huel is really, really good for this. After the festive period of overindulgence aplenty, Huel gives me a quick, affordable alternative to grabbing yet another boring sandwich or worse, skipping a meal entirely. It only takes about 30 seconds to make. Just throw a few scoops of the Huel powder into water and you've got a tasty, nutritious meal on the go, which has all of the essential vitamins and minerals I need to keep my energy levels high and stay on top of my game. There are so many different flavors and combinations to try, including a brand new one that they've sent us this week, the world's first nutritionally complete granola. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their products, so if you want to learn more, check out their website. Even better, to get your New Year's resolution going with a bang, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Head over to my.huel, that's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash Fintech, enter your email and get a £10 discount code today. Huel have never done this one anybody before, so get in there quick and get this before it's gone. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. Uh, we build fully digital products and services for clients, big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com. Connect on Twitter at 11FS team or drop us an email, hello at 11FS.com. And don't forget, the 11 media team who produced this podcast also produce InsureTech Insider, our new insurance show. Please subscribe now on iTunes uh, or whatever your favorite podcast client is. No. No, iTunes. I think everyone just yeah. everyone uses Apple. Apple, iTunes. That's, Screw that's you about guys. It. Screw yeah. you all. The world no is ending. Google the market's going to crash. Evil. Apple are dying. <laughs> just stop it. Um, but subscribe to Insure Tech Insider, regardless. Um, whichever podcast client you're using, like um, iTunes. You mean? It, it, he's at that two beer phase now. <laughs> he gets petulant. He might be hungry. Just move on. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly hungry, Jason. Uh, quite possibly hungry, Jason. What do you think about um, TransferWise and Finks having a partnership? Flinks? Finks? Flink. Apparently it's Flinks. Uh, having a partnership in Canada. This, again, comes from Bob McLean. Shout out, Bob. Um, so they've powered an instant and account verification process. They're, also, they're a financial data aggregator. They operate as a partner, API, syncing financial apps with customers' banks to verify account information, transactions, and balances in real time. Uh, so have TransferWise just done a partnership? Is there anything else going on here of interest can we see? Well, I guess... I've never heard of Flinks. I should put my hand up straight away and say they sound like an EY's Yodley uh, financial data aggregator that in some way uses either APIs or screen scraping in order to get banking data. So maybe there's not a lot of 
of sort of news there. I think it's interesting as to where those players go in a PSD2 world and whether those players evolve in order to deliver additional services on top of financial services aggregation or whether you can you just inevitably connect directly to banks in order to make that happen. But we're living in that in-between time at the moment where these guys are super important. If you want to offer this kind of service and in a regulated environment where it's becoming, uh, well, it's, it's, it's accepted that end consumers should be able to access their data and use it in different ways, then arguably there's never been a stronger time for these guys to play and to build uh, great products. Um, although it is an interim solution, while there's not the direct APIs in order to do that. I think there's something good about they're working with a local fintech provider here. Um, they, they obviously tried to work with US providers and realized that they couldn't provide um, the stuff they needed for the Canadian market. So you know, TransferWise, as part of their going global, they're starting to hook up with other fintechs. I mean, famously, um, they worked with N26 in Germany. Their, their partnerships model for expansion seems to be reasonably working quite well i guess like is this actually a partnership though not just somebody picked up transferwise api and now it's a thing like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like it's a massive partnership the bit that i kind of take out of this is a market that isn't renowned for actually showing any level of competition or um, traction from an innovation perspective like Canada, uh, similar to what you were saying earlier on, Patrick, about um, about Australia, we're now seeing stuff happening. Um, I had the pleasure today, timing is perfect on all of these things, to be hanging out with um, five uh, Canadian bank super senior folk. And uh, I kind of feel like they're, they're in a situation now where competition is a reality. Um, similar to the Australian market, you're seeing that the you know the the lack of competition has bred a level of kind of apathy of needing to really innovate and move things forwards. Whereas now, when competition is really sort of stepping up, it means that the the banks in this market are having to react and and really start, actually do things. You know, I I talk about the the ability to do nothing, you know, that has gone away in this market because new licenses are starting to be issued and uh, and new partnerships like this and new services to customers are actually being delivered. So this is a great, even if I don't fully understand what this is, just the fact that stuff is happening in Canada now is a big deal. Yeah, I think it's definitely Canada's coming on. The, it was never really on the fintech map before in terms of even like investment volume and, and deal values and stuff like that. But um, more and more, even in the last couple of months, you're seeing these stories, these startups, you know, investment rounds going into Canada. Um, I think 2018 is going to be a really interesting, interesting year for it. Well, that's with everyone from the US moving to Canada as well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the skiing and the surfing. It's, a, it's amazing how many of these things stem back to a, a kind of a, either a government or a regulatory uh, regulatory sort of intervention to a certain degree because obviously there was a there was a flurry of um, Canadian banking authorities do X or Y I think particularly in the DLT space they were pretty active weren't they and uh, yeah from- so there's a really big piece of work to do KYC AML um, amongst the big banks um, and with some technology partners uh, IBM and a, and a company whose name I forget but it's supported by by you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the governmental institutions and regulators there that that's quite interesting uh, I don't know if it'll deliver anything, but the the fact is it's a signal of intent. And I think uh, 
regulation, at least noise, can spark things to happen. Uh, and uh, seeing fintechs partner together to take on the big bad ban- banks wherever we get to, it's, it's quite fun to see. Um, and if that sparks competition that creates wins for consumers or makes banks up their game, I, I'm all for it. Um, it wouldn't be Fintech Insider without a PSD2 story. Uh, We've got to do our PSD2 story submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Val Christensen. Uh, this one comes from IB Times. Seven key facts about PSD2 that could cause some head scratching. Uh, PSD2's reach extends beyond EU member states was number one. PSD2 has tightened its interpretation of commercial agents or limited networks exemptions, which could cause a problem for digital marketplaces and e-commerce platforms. No more card surcharges exempt for corporate cards. So what does that mean for cover? Uh, Some interesting points there. Except for corporate cards. Except for corporate cards. Ah, so cover are fine. That that entire startup was suddenly panicked and listening. It was like, oh my God, PSD2 just killed my business. Oh no, wait, Simon read his show notes wrong. Uh, It's hard reading things two beers in. Uh, PSD2 and the FCA's payment account regulations affect payment account functionality differently and um, reinstating monthly statements the FCA decreed these must be provided to customers in a durable medium Uh, what on earth is that the definition of a durable medium is any instrument which enables the payment of a service user to store information addressed personally to them in a way accessible for future reference and which allows the unchanged reproduction of the information stored holy bullshit wording like (laughs) what what does that mean there was a there was a note that was talking about examples of durable mediums as given by the fca quite old school and include printouts cd-roms dvds I want a CD-ROM with my because uh, <laughs> coasters. Well, I miss I miss CD-ROM coasters. They were fun. Um, anybody remember mouse mats? I loved those. Um, the you, FCA want your, is, you want your statement as a mouse as mat. a mouse mat every month. <laughs> wow, was that just me? Like pieces of paper were really good for optical mouses when they first came along. Maybe that's just me. Um, the FCA says in certain circumstances, internet sites may qualify as a durable medium. Uh, who calls them internet sites? Like, <laughs> In certain circumstances. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, who wrote this crap? Um, outages must be reported to the FCA. Announcements on Twitter may no longer be enough. Shot across the bow. Wells uh, Fargo? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, I guess, um, I think what IB Times have done here is uncover that PSD2 is a lot more than... Uh, PSD2 and open banking are almost quite separate subjects a lot of what's going on uh, inside the banks for psd2 has much more to do with that list of stuff than it has anything to do with apis or open banking they're almost almost separate subjects so have we just done a disservice to that as a fintech community have we ignored the fact that these are the significant changes that are coming down the line <laughs> did i ask well, a really dull question PS- that you PSD2 don't is a really interesting beast because it's so big it it, it, it affects so many different uh, jurisdictions, geographies. There are so many people involved. It's that classic European government initiative. And who knows when it's going to be like implemented in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different jurisdictions. I mean, I guess the, the my hope is that Europe looks at 
open banking and the implementation entity and you know the CMA9 and says look there's a working implementation here there's a couple of iterations and suddenly that spreads but worst case scenario everyone does it differently everyone has little quirks and actually companies like Yodley and uh, you know Truelayer and all of those guys have to create connectors that then bring all of the sort of European bank stuff together um, but it's but PSD2 worries me yeah, I think I think it kind of plays to what what you guys have been talking about for a while is that now it's here. That's not the end, you know. So uh, what it's been in, it's it's been out for a couple of weeks, and there's still things that people are finding out, and that stuff that hasn't happened, and stuff that's not going to happen for the next year. So um, you know, it's not going to have that big bang impact, and there's still there's still work to be done. Obviously, yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, one thing that one thing that struck me was the RTSs. I know, I know it's something technical standards. You'll yeah. you'll help me out with that. But but the, the fact that they were only agreed on in November, and then they only go to the European Parliament what in March, and yeah. then they, it could be another eighteen months. You think just a second. These are the rules of engagement between the technical standards. I I. I yeah, I completely see what you're saying. Like the technical standards are so critical in any um, interoperability piece, and industry generally doesn't like when a regulator tries to set standards because it's like, oh well, you're imposing standards upon me. Surely the industry knows best. But I, I always found that argument a little hollow. If we're going to have, we've got to empower somebody to set a standard, and if we're going to have this stuff, but at least with the nine banks in the UK or the nine big ones that you can get together to say right, you guys, sort it out. It, they didn't go to and say every financial institution has to get together and, and organise this stuff. It's like, let's just pick the nine ones with most market share and then say, between this smaller group, sort it out. Not a European-wide implementation, which surely is is destined for uh, to just go on and on and on. I mean, are we, are we going to see the implementation at like across Europe. There was a story I saw earlier today where one of the Dutch authorities said that PSD2 implementations don't take into account uh, the general data protection regulations. So the two are actually opposed with each other, which a lot of people have been saying for some time, which is the two almost oppose each other. To follow GDPR, you can't do PSD2. To follow PSD2, you can't do GDPR. Like You can see why big banks look at this thing and scratch their heads when they've got uh, a whole bunch of other regulations coming at them and a whole bunch of other things to deliver. They've got Basel III really starting to bite next year you've got uh mifid 2 that's really hit you've had ring fencing hit like my god there's a lot going on from from a regulatory perspective but if you go back to episode three of fintech insider i said that psd2 was going to be a disappointment i'm not surprised that it's going to be a disappointment for a little while longer um the stuff with the fees stuff is the stuff that probably crossed over into the public consciousness a lot more open banking as a subject will probably be dining out on for the next five to ten years well we need something to talk about on the next 500 episodes Oh, but we do have a good and finally story. Um, this one was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Alex S. Um, David, I'm just going to let you have this. Just, just go. It's kind of a random one. Like I'm, I'm actually materially disappointed in myself that I didn't know you could buy this stuff on Amazon, given how much time I spent on Amazon. But this is a man who ordered a £3,000 Bitcoin gear online. And instead of actually being sent the uh, the Bitcoin miner, was sent a, uh, a DVD of The Boss Baby. Which, like, I, I love that it's not just a DVD. It's a DVD of, a, of one of the worst movies oh, ever made, no, according to humankind. Like, I've, I've had to watch that with my three-year-old about 15 times, and it grows on you. I'm just going to say it grows <laughs> on you after a while. I think but, Rotten um, Tomatoes would disagree. But with this, this guy is, um, yeah, like 
sort of buddied up with um, about four or five of his uh, friends and family to drum up the £3,150, apparently it was, to do it. And after two months of going and backwards and forwards with um, Amazon, still hasn't had any sort of uh, uh, kind of um, refund or explanation. No, no, he did, because I followed up on that. Oh, he's he got, did it get his money back. But it's one, of those, it's one of those great examples where he received a parcel, he signed for it, and then said, actually, no, I didn't get what I ordered. But of course, it would be very easy for him to actually have got what he ordered and then to, to query it. And of course, at something working at such massive scale as Amazon, how many of these queries do you think they, they get? And so you pull out this one small story of someone who ordered something totally different and very techy and got something way over here. But how many like queries do you think they get a day for the stuff that Amazon send? Well, you know, I ordered this pair of jeans in a you know size twelve, but it came in a size ten. You know, like give me my money back. And it, you know, they must have so many things to sort out. And it's not just Amazon. It, I think it ties into that theme of services at scale that we love the low cost nature of, whether it people posting stuff on Facebook and then, well, do we need editors to make sure that everything that they post there is okay? Or uh, to, to any kind of service that is technically backed, has that technology thing, but actually when it goes wrong, needs people to sort out. Wow, silence. <laughs> I just think if you, if you want to go and look at this article, um, bringing it back to a, a more silly note, you, there's a picture of the guy just like holding the DVD and it's one of the funniest things <laughs> I've seen in a while. Yeah, so that was on, was it on Devon Live? Um, which is an interesting... Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was uh, in Exeter, I think. So you can also find out what's, ha- what's been happening to Exeter Chiefs and it's to, um, to Exeter like, City. So. It's quite long. There was, always some, to- there was all, also some hint of, yes, I was buying it for my Romanian yeah. relative because he couldn't get it and you're like right <laughs> is, the, is the story about to take a dodgy turn in, in some way uh, speaking of dodgy turns there's a second and finally story this week and Jason I'm going to let you have it this one so for me this sums up where we are the internet modern culture this is 2018 just in a, in a bottle so Grumpy Cat wins $710,000 payout in copyright lawsuit So Grumpy Cat is this meme of, surprise, surprise, a grumpy cat. And its owners uh, licensed the image of a cat that looks grumpy to people who made coffee, who said, well, we'll pay $150,000 for your grumpy cat uh, in order to sell this coffee. But they went beyond that. They didn't just stay there. They did T-shirts. They did ground coffee. That wasn't in the contract. Mm. So uh, off to court they went. And the cat, real name Tardar Sauce, who went viral in, in 2012, has, has just had like the mother of all payouts. Well, his owners have. So according to Courthouse News, Grumpy Cat herself made a brief appearance during the January trial, um, but was not present for the verdict. So, um, like, Too busy. It, well, no, because if the verdict's been read and it's like, yeah, you've won, and then Grumpy Cat's there, it's like, oh. Uh, that's Turn him upside down. <laughs> Only 710 grand. Are you kidding me? That's probably what she would have said. Sorry, I'm going to have to send a message to my wife. Um, Fiona, if you're listening, we have to put Bunty out to work. <laughs> 
I mean, the, you, you know, the market for Schuppet Lagerfeld lookalikes is uh, is is booming, and we ought to be we ought to be getting in there. Yeah, That's see, all. this made me look at uh, anybody who owns pets and go, "You guys are lazy." Like, <laughs> we need to start like a little talent agency, and anytime there's any kind of pet meme, let's hunt down the owner and say, "We will represent you." Like, you know, we saw that little kitten being tucked in with a blanket. Like, we need to hunt down that owner and say, cute kitten, it's got to be worth some money. It's got to be. But can that kitten replicate that cuteness? I don't know, guys. We've got quite a lot of work on with all the stuff. Like, I'm not sure talent agency for kittens is something I can justify as diversifying into right now. Does this tie into that whole thing we should focus in 2018? A radical focus on building banks. Oh, my God. Yeah, we need to get on with that. (laughs) Sorry. Alrighty, on that note, that wraps up this very special news show. Thank you to our guests. Uh, Patrick, where can people find out more about you and what it is you do? Well, unfortunately, The Economist doesn't have bylines, so it's not always obvious, but I do tweet occasionally at, at Pat underscore Lane. Thank you very much. And what about you, Sophie? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood, or if you want to find out more about Innovate Finance, it's www.innovatefinance.com. Thank you, Sophie. David? Uh, David Breer on Twitter. And if you want to drop me uh, some hate mail, it's david at 11fs.com. Yeah, I'll send you a grumpy cat. <laughs> what about you, Jason? Uh, at cutekittentalentagency.com. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, no, at Jason Bates on Twitter. Uh, at at cutekittentalentagency.com. I'm, I'm I'm on GoDaddy. I'm checking for it right now. Uh, other websites are available to buy websites. Um, I felt like I was on the BBC there for a second. That got really weird, didn't it? Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at SYTaylor or drop me a line to Simon at 11FS.com. Come talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter, uh, podcast at 11FS.com. Send us an email. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe and tell your friends. For the love of God, we're a fintech podcast and we talk about kittens occasionally. Does it get any better? And we will see you soon. Take care.